TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness. Howard Zinn, The Occupation of the United States, Part 1 of 2, TUC Radio Archives. We're joining independent media across the country in the fall of 2022 for a celebration of the 100th birthday of this great historian. He is the TUC radio recording from 2006. Howard Zinn spoke about the United States as occupied territory. He said that political and ideological power have been seized by a small group of radical, anti-democratic ideologues. Howard Zinn was a historian, author, professor, playwright, and activist. He taught political science at Boston University and wrote more than 20 books, including his best-selling and influential A People's History of the United States. Zinn described himself as, quote, part anarchist, part socialist, maybe a democratic socialist. He wrote extensively about the civil rights and anti-war movements and labor history of the U.S., Zinn died suddenly in January 2010. He was about to give two major talks in Santa Monica, California. Zinn grew up in Brooklyn in a working-class immigrant household. At 18, he became a shipyard worker and then joined the Air Force and flew bombing missions during World War II. These experiences helped shape his opposition to war and his strong belief in the importance of knowing history. After attending college under the GI Bill, he worked as a warehouse loader while earning a PhD in history from Columbia. Zen spoke on October 17, 2006 for No War, the Northwestern University Peace Project. Thanks to Dale Lehman at WZRD for this recording. Here is Howard Zinn. Thank you for your warm welcome. I want to talk first about occupation. When we hear the word occupation, we think, what do we think? We think Iraq. I want to start off talking about a, the occupation of the United States. I see the United States as an occupied country. I, I see a, that a small group of men, an occasional woman just to give them a break, right? But a small group of men really have uh, taken over the country. They've uh, somehow managed to get into the presidency uh, with the help of uh, Republican leaders in Florida, with the help of a Republican Supreme Court, uh, with the help of a obsequious Democratic Party. They've managed to take control of the country They win 48% of the vote or 51% of the vote. They take 100% of the power, and they take us into two wars in several years, and they take the wealth of the country, and they squander it on military operations and give it to the richest people in the country and destroy the environment and... Uh, ignore the needs of people as they spend all of this money for the war 
ignore health, ignore the rights of workers, keep the minimum wage at $5.15 an hour while they vote big pay raises for themselves all the time. Yeah, I consider we live in an occupied country, and, and our problem is, you know, to do something about that. The question is, how did it happen? Uh, how did it come to pass? To put it another way, how do we put up with it? Why do we put up with it? Why do the American people put up with what is going on? We're supposed to be a democracy. Uh, I was reading something that was reported by a man named Gustav Gilbert, who was a psychologist at the time of the Nuremberg trials after World War II, you know, the trials of the leading Nazis. And Gustav Gilbert was a psychologist who was given the job of going into the various jail cells where the top Nazi leaders were held and interviewing them. Uh, and one of the people he interviewed was Hermann Goering, second in command to Adolf Hitler. And he took notes. And he reports that this is what Goering said when he asked Goering, how, how did you get the German people to support uh, this war, which has been so disastrous for the German people and for so many other people, but certainly disastrous for the German people. And, and Goering said, and according to Gilbert's notes, which are in, in a book he wrote called Nuremberg Diary, which he wrote right after the war, Goering said, why, of course the people don't want war. Why would some poor slob on a farm want to risk his life in a war? But after all, it's the leaders of the country who determine the policy. The people can always be brought to the bidding of the leaders. All you have to do is tell them they are being attacked and denounce the pacifists for lack of patriotism and exposing the country to danger. It works the same way in any country. What struck me was the, that last sentence. It works the same way in any country. I mean, it works the same way in a fascist country, in, a, in the country of Hitler, as it does in a country like the United States, a, a liberal, democratic country with representative government, with democratic institutions. I mean, that works the same way in what we call a democracy. And if it does, what does that tell us about democracy? What does that tell us about whether we have a right to call ourselves a democracy so long as this is true also of our own country, so long as it is true that the people of the country uh, who perhaps originally did not think of war, want to go to war, are not impelled to war, are driven and cajoled and uh, seduced and coerced into going to war by the government of the United States. It makes us rethink the issue of democracy because we all grow up in this country learning that we live in a democracy, and uh, there's a contrast, a very stark contrast we learn between the, there are the totalitarian states and, and there are the democracies, and, and we know what the totalitarian states are, and the United States is the epitome of democracy, and, and we learn that we, we are a democracy because we have a constitution, and we have three branches of government, and, and we have checks and balances, and we have voting, uh, free elections, and so we are a democracy. We believe this, at least I believed it when I went to junior high school, and I was, I was very 
intrigued and, and you might say even proud of, of the fact that I lived in, in a democracy and, a, and the teacher put on the blackboard the, the scheme of a democracy. Here are the branches of government, executive, judicial, legislative, and there he drew the lines between them, checks and balances. It sounded really nice. <laughs> uh, if you have checks and balances, nothing can go wrong. If one of the elements of government does something wrong, it will be checked by the other branch of government. Well, that's the way it was in junior high school. <laughs> then you grow up. <laughs> then you get out into the world. Uh, then you look around, and, and then you start reading books. And then you discover, well, it's not simply that. Democracy requires more than that. For one thing, democracy requires an informed public. If the public is misinformed, if the public is lied to, if the public is deceived, uh, you cannot have democracy. But what about the press and what about the media? Aren't they supposed to inform the public? Uh, well, yes, <laughs> they're supposed to inform the public. But what if they don't? Then, a, then an essential requirement of democracy is lost. Well, an example of this, Colin Powell appears before the United Nations one month before the start of the war in Iraq. Many of you remember that. And delivers this long speech with all of the details about all the weapons of mass destruction possessed by Iraq. It's very, very impressive. Do the media question any of his statements? So they ask, where did you get this information? Did you ask, what are the sources of, of your impeccable intelligence? Uh, no. They rush to admire him. The, the New York Times, after Colin Powell's speech, is absolutely breathless with admiration. The Washington Post says, well, I mean, how could you have a, a more persuasive case made? And the leading members of the Democratic Party say, well, this is, uh, yeah, absolutely uh, unimpeachable. Well, of course, it turns out that this speech probably had more lies in it than any speech ever made before the United Nations, you see. And many, there have been many lying speeches made before the United Nations. Uh, but it turns out that the democracy we have, uh, while we're not a totalitarian state, and we don't have one newspaper and one voice, no, we have two newspapers, <laughs> or five, or we have we have multiple choice tests. You can choose at election time between the Democrats and the Republicans. You can choose between Time and Newsweek. You can choose on television. There isn't just one government-controlled television station. There's ABC and CBS and you know uh, NBC and uh, Fox News and CNN. I mean, that's a choice. Uh, now th that's a more deceptive democracy than if you have a simple one party, one newspaper, one radio station, a totalitarian state. Then you deceive yourself uh, into thinking that you have a choice because uh, you live in a multiple choice society where you, you can choose between A, B, C, D, but not E. Uh, and so uh, you begin to question you know, is, is this democracy when the, the media, supposed to be the guardians 
of the public and the sort of investigative arm of the society uh, when the media caves in all the time and repeats what the government says and goes along with what the authorities tell you, uh, then where are you going to get your, your information? But then the question is, why does the public accept this? Why does the public believe it? Why does the public go along with it? And uh, I think I would argue that it has something to do with a loss of history. Uh, a loss of history which is collaborated in, by the media, uh, because the media don't give us historical background for the things that are happening uh, day by day in the country. And the educational system doesn't give us the historical background to enable us to be uh, critical and investigative and really concerned citizens in a society uh, because generally our historical education uh, repeats the kinds of things uh, that you will hear from uh, the political leaders of the country and that, that you will hear in the, in the editorial pages of the newspapers. So when I say the loss of history is important, uh, I mean the loss of a particular kind of history. Because we all learn history in school, we get history courses all the way through from the very beginning, from Christopher Columbus. And, uh, and we learn who are the heroes uh, of, of our country, and we learn about Andrew Jackson, and we learn about Theodore Roosevelt, and learn about Woodrow Wilson, and so on and so forth. I mean, who are the heroes? The heroes are our presidents. The heroes are our political leaders. The heroes are our great industrialists. The heroes are our generals whose statues decorate the various cities. I'm not talking about that kind of history. To tell us that Columbus is a hero who massacred the Indians on Hispaniola, to tell us that Andrew Jackson was a hero, a racist, a slave owner, an Indian killer, to tell us Theodore Roosevelt was a hero. Theodore Roosevelt appears on all of the lists. You know, every once in a while they, they give you lists of the great presidents, and it's a lot of fun, you know. Who's number three, you know, uh, top f 10, you know. And Theodore Roosevelt always makes it to the top. Theodore Roosevelt, the lover of war, uh, the man who congratulated uh, a commander of an American force in the Philippines in 1906 after that commander led a raid that massacred 600 uh, men, women, and children on the southern Filipino island. No, we need a different kind of a history, a history uh, in, in which the, the, the heroes will be the dissenters, the heroes will be the whistleblowers and the troublemakers, the heroes will be uh, the, the people that, uh, who, without power, but uh, who need power, and the people who speak out so that instead of Andrew Jackson, we'll have the Cherokee Indians who were driven out of their lands by Andrew Jackson. And, and instead of Theodore Roosevelt, we'll have uh, Mark Twain, who denounced Theodore Roosevelt. Mark Twain, who is vice president of the Anti-Imperialist League. No. Instead of Woodrow Wilson, who's presented on the history books as the great idealist, a great idealist, believer in self-determination and all of that, the man who 
bombarded the Mexican coast who set an army of occupation into Haiti in 1915, an army of occupation into the Dominican Republic who got this country into the bloody mess of World War I. Uh, you know, one of our great idealist presidents, after all, he was a PhD. Uh, what could be wrong? Uh, so no, we, we need a different kind of history. If people knew history, if the American public really knew its history, uh, and the President of the United States got up before the public and said, we've got to go to war because this country is a danger to us, or because we have to bring democracy to this country, or because we have to bring liberty to this country, uh, because that's what we stand for. If people had some sense of history and they listened to this, they would remember all those times in history when presidents have come up before the public and said, oh, we've got to go to war for this reason or that reason or the other reason. Uh, President Polk telling the nation in 1846, we've got to go to war against the Mexicans, uh, those uncivilized people. Uh, oh, there's some clash between Mexican soldiers and American soldiers, and that's why we have to go to war. Or uh, McKinley telling the nation we've got to go to war in Cuba to liberate the Cubans from Spanish rule. Well, there's a little bit of truth to that. We did liberate the Cubans from Spanish rule, but we didn't liberate them from American rule. And so when Spain was out of Cuba, the United States moved into Cuba. American corporations moved in. United Fruit moved in. The railroads moved in. The banks moved in. And from then on, Cuba did not belong to Spain. It belonged to us. But we were told we were going into Cuba and fighting that war for uh, the freedom of the Cubans. And then when we, an army was sent into the Philippines and we fought a long and bloody war in the Philippines, a war that's doesn't get very mentioned in our history books because, you know, there's, there's kind of an attention to the Spanish-American War. Quick war, quick victory, three months of what a, an American cabinet officer called a splendid little war. Uh, but in the Philippines, it wasn't a splendid little war. Uh, it was a six, seven-year war, a war filled with atrocities uh, in which the United States Army subdued the Filipino independence movement to establish American control over the Philippines. If Americans knew this history, if they knew the history of uh, the lies told by Wilson, the lies told by Lyndon Johnson about the Gulf of Tonkin and, and the, the necessity to go to war in Vietnam, well, they wouldn't simply take it uh, when President Bush gets up and says, we've got to go to war in Iraq uh, for democracy, for liberty, to save the Iraqis, etc., etc., you're listening to talk by the late, great historian Howard Zinn. This is part of the independent media celebration of the centennial of his birth on August 24, 1922. He spoke in October 2006 in Chicago at No War. History is, is useful in that way. History can protect us against deceptions given to us uh, by the people in authority, because then we would know all the lies that have been told to the American people in order to get them into war. An even larger lie that I think a knowledge of history might uncover, and, and that is the idea that somehow we all have the same interest in this country. We're one big happy family. 
The Constitution starts off, we the people of the United States. Of course, we the people did not establish the Constitution. Fifty-five rich white men established the Constitution. But the, the, the myth is perpetuated in the culture that it's uh, we the people. The, the culture has a, a language which advances this idea. Phrases like the national interest, national security, uh, national defense, as if we all have the same national interest, as if we all have the same policies that will bring us security, as if uh, Exxon and I have the same interest. You know, General Motors and you have the same interest. Uh, the young fellow who is interrogated by, by a television crew, a young fellow or a young woman who's going off to Iraq, and, and the television uh, person says, tell us, why are you going to Iraq? And the young person says, I'm going to fight for my country. And unfortunately, this, this young person has adopted the idea that his interest is the same as the interest of the president. He says he's going to die for his country, but he's not going to die for his country. He's not going to die for the American people. It's not going to be in the interests of the American people for him to die in Iraq. He will fight and die or get wounded or lose an arm or a leg or get blinded, not for the country, but for Bush and Cheney and Rumsfeld and for uh, Halliburton and Bechtel. There's a difference of interest involved there, a difference between the interests of certain groups in the country and the interests of the rest of the people in the country. But if we lose sight of that, if we forget that there are different interests, if we think we all have the same interests and we can throw phrases around like national interest and national security and have it apply equally to all of us, then we are, we are being deceived. There's hardly anything more important than to understand that the government and the people have different interests. Not always. There are moments, there are moments in history when the interests coincide, but they're rather rare. So to know that, to understand this difference of interest, is, is the beginning of a comprehension of how the society works and the beginning of skepticism that policies that advance the interests of the super-rich are, are also advantageous to all the rest of us. Policies that advance the interests of the people in the White House are also advantageous to the rest of us. I would suggest that if you know some history, you might learn that behind the slogans that are presented to the American public about going to war, about going for freedom and democracy and so on, there are motives that are not disclosed to us. If you really study the history of American interventions in other countries and American wars, uh, you can't help but come to the conclusion uh, that, yes, there are motives other than spreading democracy and liberty and self-determination and civilization. You might learn that there have always been powerful economic motives driving American policy, both in this country and abroad. That is, in this country, in seizing the land from the Indians who lived here, 
and abroad in invading other countries for raw materials or markets. So, uh, with Latin America, it's been very, very clear. You can look at any history of our intervention in Latin America and find behind it some very uh, powerful corporation that's involved, whether it's United Fruit in Cuba and Guatemala or uh, IT&T in Anaconda Copper in Chile, or as in the present time, oil uh, in the Middle East. And even in the case of the war in Vietnam, where there's no specific economic interest attached to taking control of Vietnam, the importance seen in Vietnam by the establishment was that a foothold in Vietnam would give a certain access to the riches of all of Southeast Asia. In the uh, secret memos that went back and forth in, in the 50s when the United States first became involved in, in Vietnam and Indochina, the secret memos that went out, and we, which only were disclosed to us when uh, the whistleblowers gave us the Pentagon Papers, top secret papers, and we could read the Pentagon Papers that we could see that in those memos uh, where they talked inside to one another. Uh, they didn't talk about going into Vietnam for liberty and democracy. They talked about tin, rubber, and oil. Those three words kept coming up uh, again and again. People like Eugene Debs understood what wars were about. He understood, well, he was a socialist. Socialists know things. <laughs> I mean, other people know things, too. I don't want to put down non-socialists. But socialists are, you know, that's what makes them socialists. They can't help it. They're, they're class conscious. They read Marx, you know. And Debs was a socialist, and, and, and when the United States uh, was entering World War I, uh, he made a speech in Ohio in which he said, he said, the master class makes the war, the working class fights the war. Now, for that, he was sentenced to 10 years in prison. Not allowed to talk like that. Unanimous Supreme Court, liberals, conservatives. After a while, you begin to wonder about these labels, liberal and conservative, you know, opinion written by the, uh, the dean of liberals on the Supreme Court, Oliver Wendell Holmes. I mean, how can you fault Oliver Wendell Holmes? How can you fault anybody with three names? Uh, <laughs> but he sent them to prison for, for telling the truth about who, who profits from wars. I remember that during the Vietnam War, there was an artist in New York who was working for the anti-war movement, a very well-known artist, uh, and he did a poster which was reproduced in, in the thousands, very simple poster with, with just a few words on it. The poster said, war is good for business, invest your son. Well, that's uh, chilling, but, you know, absolutely true. That was Howard Zen. Zen was a beloved teacher of history at Boston University, where he taught political science. He wrote more than 20 books, including A People's History of the United States. After attacks on that book in the media and even from academia, it has become a best-selling and influential text that is used widely and has given rise 
to a whole new category of history books. They are written from the perspective of the people rather than the political and military leaders and elites. And that was my contribution to the independent media celebration of the 100th anniversary of Howard Zinn's birthday in the fall of 2022, first broadcast on TUC Radio in 2006. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, www.tucradio.org. There you can also subscribe to weekly free podcasts. My name is Maria Geleiden. Thank you for listening.